It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In an experiment. Why is light so fast? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to The Nature Podcast. This week, it's a collaboration special. I'm Benjamin Thompson. Nature has a special focus on collaboration this week, and we're following suit here on the podcast. One of the architects of this endeavour is David Payne, managing editor of Careers and Supplements here at Nature, and sometimes host of Working Scientist, the Nature Careers podcast. And today, David is my co-host. David, hi. Hi, Ben. Delighted to be here. Well, David, today is a collaboration podcast about collaborations, which I guess is maybe a little bit meta, but maybe you can tell us why is nature focusing on collaborations now? Yeah, it's a very good question, actually, Ben. I mean, I think the impetus for this special obviously has been the amazing, extraordinary, challenging year that we've all had. COVID has dominated everything and um, there have been lockdowns, there have been challenges. There's been obviously an urgency to find a vaccine, some really interesting new ways for scientists to work together. And before that, there was lots of work done around the research culture and how that needed to change. So it just felt that the timing was absolutely perfect to really look at the topic. And in terms of the topic, of course, the word collaboration can mean a bunch of different things. Yeah, I mean, collaborations are a hugely broad church. Uh, You have obviously collaborations within disciplines, you have collaborations across institutions, you have collaborations across countries. And the other thing that I'm really delighted that we're covering in the special this week is we're also looking at collaborations involving members of local communities. We really wanted this special to bring together, you know, all the lessons learned, uh, learnings for the future, and just really to celebrate some of the great collaborations that are happening across science. And give us a flavour of what we can expect in the special then, David. So we've got lots of stuff. We've got uh, case studies of fantastic collaborations. We've got some dives into the data to look at collaborative trends. And we're focusing a little bit more on the kind of the downside of collaborations, really. What happens when a partnership fails for whatever reason, you know, and how you can move on from that and learn from it and just basically get a research collaboration back on track. Well, plenty in there, clearly, but let's crack on with this week's podcast. And first up, reporter Julie Gould has been looking at why research collaborations are so important and seeing how they're changing. It's rare to see humans trying to solve large-scale problems on their own. Families work together, communities work together, nations work together. 
It may not be perfectly harmonious all the time, but it's how we roll. And science is no different. Collaborations now form the backbone of science, says Martin Gargiulio, a sociologist from INSEAD Business School in Singapore. The main reason which collaboration is important in academia is that not everybody knows everything. And some people may be better at one aspect of the research, others may be better at other aspects. When you're thinking about research that requires uh, specific assets, you may have a lab I don't. You may have certain machinery that is required to, to do the experiments that I want to do, and I don't. You may have a data set that is important, and I don't, and so on. The nature of scientific collaboration is changing, with larger and larger groups coming together, something that Nevin Krogan, a molecular and systems biologist from the Quantitative Biosciences Institute at the University of California, San Francisco, says is vital for tackling global issues. The problems that now we're focused on, in my mind, can only be solved by groups of scientists um, around the world, with not just different approaches, but different ways of looking at things as well. But the research enterprise hasn't been set up to always support or reward team efforts. Yet, large-scale collaborations are showing to be effective. Huge international efforts were made to build and use the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland. And the COVID-19 pandemic has brought together many stakeholders in many countries to find a way to help humanity. Nevin Krogan and Jacqueline Fabius, also from the Quantitative Biosciences Institute, leveraged many of their existing networks and brought in more when working on protein interactions and other features of the virus. So if, if we keep having incredible results as large groups, such as we've had with the SARS-CoV-2 group, uh, you know, one of our papers had over 200 authors. If we keep having incredible success, it's very hard to debate that it's not a better direction to go in. It doesn't have to be the only direction, but it has to be one of the directions. So I think it's just about critical mass and eventually the proof is in the pudding. Well, in the, in the pudding in that case, that uh, paper that Jacqueline alluded to has 200 authors, that took maybe five months. And normally a work such as that would take five, six, seven years. But as the nature of collaborations continues to change, this means the way the projects are funded does too. For Trudy Lang, a global health researcher from the University of Oxford, this has meant that the funding agencies have had to fund collaborative efforts rather than a sole researcher or sole group. There's definitely a discussion, a drive within funding organisations to make this shift. And that's something I think that should be equally well received by the scientists. I mean, we have to take that on too. And I'm I'm really hoping that our next awards are are completely fair federated partnerships where it's not one of us taking the lead it's between maybe four or five of us even more and as scientists we need to see that by you know standing together in a team rather than one person getting all the reward we'll all do better. Standing together as a team also means being rewarded as a team. Researchers careers are driven by what and where they publish but often not everyone is rewarded fairly for their contributions. Too often the lead investigator is still somebody from the global north. And even though the research happens in the south, most of the heavy lifting, thinking, running of the study happens in the global south. It is still too normal that it's a Western researcher that is the lead PI and the lead author on the papers. And and I think to really 
turn that around, we should probably change the model of having one key person that's one leading the grant and two the lead author concept on papers. So to make sure that everyone gets credit where it's due, Trudy suggests giving everyone equal opportunity to contribute to a project. If there's a really big clinical trial going on that's being run typically by somebody in the global north, it's their projects. You can weave in other studies too. So there could be some social science studies, some health economics, a laboratory component. And that's a great opportunity for a local researcher to really get a little bit of funding maybe to do that project. You know, lead investigators, you know, they've got this massive grant, they're going to get their wonderful paper. Then they've got some responsibility too to look at the team that's doing the work and see where they can let those teams flourish and shine and find some opportunities to let them grow. And then other times it's by carving it up in the first place and instead of putting in one big grant application, put in several or push your local country partners to put the grants in in their name and you step back and be a co-applicant and not the lead applicant, which is, you know, there's no, there's, there's no incentive for doing that. It's, you've got to, that's got to be a, pretty much a completely philanthropic step to do that because you're not bringing money into your university and you're not taking the reward for it. But there's many a time that's the right thing to do. Of course, not all collaborations are large ones. Even in small collaborations, it's important to give credit where it's due, says Martin Gargiulio. He suggests that it's worth having a discussion about authorship, for example, at the very beginning of a partnership, particularly when you're the more junior collaborator. Now, this isn't going to be an easy conversation, but it is an important learning opportunity. I think one way to approach that in my field, okay, they, they may be completely different because there are different norms in other fields. I said, look, this idea is very important to me. Hmm? So I would like, if possible, to be the first author. And then you're going to learn a lot because you're going to learn whether you are dealing with somebody who is somebody you want as a research partner, okay? The right answer in that kind of cases is, of course, right? Maybe some people don't do that, okay? And, and I know some people don't do that, okay? But then I advise my students, well, if you find that, I mean, just find a different author. Hmm? But how do you know when a collaboration isn't working? When you realize that every meeting is, is a drag, that every iteration is a drag, that uh, you don't see eye to eye with your co-author, that your co-author don't live up to the promises, or he or she doesn't have anything to contribute, right? And you're doing all the work. Uh, so ideally, you, you, you move out early, but either you need to finish this relationship, you need to finish this paper, but then don't get into a new one. Or you need to say, look, I mean, I'm done, I'm out, you finish on your own. Easy said and done, that may be the difference between making tenure or not, right? Although this is the reality for many researchers, it's not an ideal one. And an ideal world is not likely to happen anytime soon. However, after this pandemic is over, there are going to be many opportunities for the academic system to rethink its operating system, says Nevin Krogan. But if you're ever going to have change, now's the time. It's almost like we've got a clean slate coming out of this pandemic. Let's make the changes that so many people want to see. And we can point to all the successes that have happened over the last year and a half. And I think scientists around the world are actually pushing in this direction. And the big question is, can we make that change that I think is so sorely needed in the scientific world? That was Nevin Krogan, ending that report from Julie Gould. So, David, a lot in there to discuss. 
Certainly. And maybe we should start with the nature of how collaborations are changing. I think social media is playing a very big part here. So, you know, researchers are searching each other out. They're networking virtually. I think there's been a huge surge in interest in multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary collaborations. So I think the whole landscape of collaborations is changing. And also the way that the various partners in these collaborations are being credited. One thing that we're also looking at in the special issue is some of the systemic changes that need to happen within science. You know, so um, some of the conferences I've been to to help inform the direction of the special have talked about a move away from the superstar PI somebody who you know tends to dominate a collaboration and how actually the you know the ecosystem of research can change so that individual contributions collective contributions are recognized well that's something else that Julie looked at what's being done to kind of address this um a couple of things spring to mind there Ben I mean one thing I would point out was when Welcome kicked off the research culture exercise that they were doing. So they're taking a very hard look at actually how the whole funding ecosystem works and how right at the beginning of a grant application people can very much more record who is going to be involved in a collaboration and who is going to get the credit there. And the second thing I'd point out is the attempts that publishers are making. The system that springs to mind is the contributor roles taxonomy, which is a much more respectful and systematic way of recording you know the different contributions that a collaborator is going to make and I think you know the kind of seriousness of this was demonstrated when we were working on the careers feature which looks at why authorship disputes happen and collaborations break down because you know we we talked to many many people as part of that and so few are willing or were able to go on the record because they were really worried that you know if they talked about an authorship dispute with a particular research group that it was going to have career ramifications for them that they would be seen as someone who isn't collegiate who isn't respectful of team culture when at the end of the day they were just articulating a concern that they'd worked particularly hard on a research question and they at the end of the day they didn't see their name in the author list. I think there's obviously what can you do about a research paper you need to have a lead author you need to have a corresponding author you know you need to recognize the person that that drove that collaboration that actually had all the funding conversations at the very very beginning of it It's it's a really really difficult one to crack. I just think the important thing is that people are now talking about it. And I would hope that if we looked at this issue in a couple of years' time, that science and the whole research enterprise would have moved on a little bit. We can have those more courageous conversations. Well, are there any examples of how researchers are trying to get ahead of these issues, maybe before they arise? Well, actually, one thing that's being very much talked about, I mean, I love this term, the idea of a scientific prenup. Um, (laughs) It's this idea of getting people around the table at the very beginning of a collaboration, not making any assumptions about who is going to do what and how they're going to be recognised but actually sitting down and working out you know what will the author list be in the collaboration you know how will we on the ground work together often in very difficult circumstances often with the clock ticking because you know we want to achieve something by a certain date so just trying to forge out a more respectful dialogue between the various parties in a collaboration and actually as part of that also to manage expectations I mean I think um, certainly some of the early career researchers that uh, you know contributed to the piece we've got on authorship disputes I think you know entered into their collaboration thinking you know they may have been given uh, more credit than they ended up getting so of course you know they need tools to help them address that and to assert more effectively but um, but at the end of the day also you know if the data that they gathered at the beginning of a process wasn't ultimately used actually they need to realize that the landscape may have changed during the course of that collaboration which is why they won't get 
gets sort of star billing. So as ever, you know, the solution to everything seems to be communication, but actually getting those nuts and bolts worked out right at the very beginning of a collaboration seems to be much more recognised now than it was. I mean, I think we've really been focusing here on when scientists are collaborating with other scientists. But of course, in the research enterprise, there are so many more sorts of collaboration than just that. Absolutely. And I think one strength of this special is that we do really, really focus on those fantastic examples where, you know, researchers collaborate with, you know, non-researchers to frame a particular research question, you know, to work on papers, to solve a local public health challenge. The picture story we have is of a collaboration in Papua New Guinea where, you know, a scientist is working with a local village guide to track ant populations in a local rainforest. We have examples of co-production of research where researchers team up with patients and patients are very much involved in the research question and making sure that the paper delivers for them as well. What I love about some of these stories is the candour, actually. There are some really, really frank acknowledgements that often these collaborations tend to start with just a bunch of scientists sitting around a table and very quickly they realise that actually that is not going to address the the question that they want answering. So you do see these acknowledgements that, you know, getting other stakeholders involved in you know the data gathering framing of the research question actually addressing future collaborations that could happen so we're talking about local communities getting involved i would say this is a great showcase of all the different collaborations that can happen and the fantastic achievements that can be made well david you talk about how researchers and local community members can come together to address challenges and that's very much the focus of our next package, where reporter Nick Petrich Howe has been talking to some folk from the city of Flint, Michigan, in the USA. The city of Flint, Michigan, is nowadays probably best known for the water crisis that began in 2014. Water was coming out yellow and brown from faucets. I myself drank water a few times and it was like, It would pretty instantly give you a stomach ache. Immediately you could see the discoloration in the water or you could smell the odors in the water and the feel of the water. The reason why the water had become so obviously bad was due to a cost-cutting decision to change the supply of water from Lake Huron to the Flint River. A seemingly simple decision to cut costs had devastating consequences for the population of Flint. In addition to the contaminants discolouring the water, it also contained toxic amounts of lead from the city's ageing pipe network. While at first officials denied that the water was unsafe, several groups of researchers documented the extent of the contamination in the water, eventually causing the authorities to concede that there was a problem. After more than a year of contaminated water, the water supply was switched. Researchers are the presumed heroes of this tale, the ones that got accountability from officials. However, that belies the efforts that the people living in Flint went to in order to raise the alarm, as Yvonne Lewis, a long-time community advocate, explains. Well, residents actually took bottles of water to make it known to the leadership that there was a problem here. Despite this, she says the residents' voices weren't heard by the people in power. 
However, they were heard loud enough for researchers and even the popular media to come to the city to see for themselves and to hear the concerns that the residents were raising. But sometimes when it got to the real scientific kinds of questions, the voices of residents were not respected in the same way because we didn't speak the same language as the scientists spoke. Research community collaborations are not always easy, as Yvonne alluded to. But in the end, the problems Flint was facing only came to light due to the efforts of both scientists and community members. And this isn't the only example. Public health researchers often come to Flint with the best intentions to work on various projects. But a lack of consideration of what the community may bring to a scientific project risks causing resentment. In fact, Yvonne has also experienced outright dismissal from scientists. When I didn't have a medical background when we were talking about medical issues, then I was actually dismissed from the table while actually sitting at the table. When I'm inquiring about how community members were identified and how they were categorized as being uncaring, unconcerned about their own health and well-being, I asked a question, who, who are you actually talking about? Because this is not the attitude that's reflected among all the members of our community. And so one of the researchers asked me what my background was, my academic background. And when I said I had a, a bachelor's in business administration, the comment was, okay. And then they turned from me and began to talk amongst themselves more about the project as if I was no longer sitting at the table. So how do you make an effective community research collaboration? For Rick Sadler, an academic who's been working with the community in Flint on public health projects, part of it is being humble. So don't make assumptions. Honestly, I feel like it's embarrassing for researchers when they come in and propose something and the community says, we've already done that, or we don't want that, or you're not accounting for these five issues. Yvonne, in fact, says she's experienced occasions when researchers have been speaking about Flint without having visited it. They then made assumptions about the people living there. For example, that all minorities within Flint are in poverty. In contrast, Rick has found that projects have worked best when they've had input from the community. One of the projects I got involved with was going to create a like a local food app. So an app that would provide more localized information about the retailers and the restaurants and grocery stores that sold healthy food. And the focus group participants marked up a map highlighting places that they both like to shop and specifically avoid shopping. And what it wound up giving us was a kind of a qualitative, quantitative mashup where I took the places they had all circled and I superimposed them onto each other. And then from that group came up with a generalized area where people did or didn't like shopping. And we learned from that people who were living in some neighborhoods didn't like shopping in their own neighborhoods. And some of the reasons they had cited included that they didn't feel safe shopping in these stores, but also that the stores didn't have quality food. So it kind of painted a picture of food access that was more nuanced than just me plopping grocery stores on a map and saying, oh, look, you have fine food access. Yvonne also believes that projects work best when community members are involved. 
In fact, them having a role in the design of experiments can be especially valuable. When we're engaged early on, we have opportunities to look at what those differences are, those nuances might be that could challenge or either improve the research if we're working together. And ultimately, the goal is, are we doing work collectively that is going to improve the quality of life for the residents in the community? Both Rick and Yvonne believe that it's important to put enough time to allow the relationships between researchers and the community to flourish in the long term. However, the nature of scientific work can constrain researchers. They may need to quickly publish a paper or write the next grant. Do these demands allow for the long-standing relationships to be forged? Well, for Rick, keeping the community in mind is important for every step. When we write grants, a lot of times we have the community partners right there with us. They may not write 50% of the grant, but maybe they write 25% because the type of work we're proposing requires that community engagement. Yvonne, as a community advocate, gets the demands of scientific work too. And she suggests talking to the community about it. One of the things that we have come to terms with is that we have to understand what those conflicts are. And so often we talk about let's set realistic expectations. Help me as a community member understand what your challenges are. What are your what are the requirements? What do you need to get your goals accomplished? And then let me tell you what my expectations are and what my needs are as a community member to have good quality outcomes for the community. Because what we do understand is research is necessary. The key to any relationship is communication. And community research partnerships are no different. And that relates to the language used as well. Research is famed for its acronyms and jargon. And this can form barriers. Even the context can cause confusion. And so even though we both might be saying public, we may have different understanding of what that means. For me as a community member, when I say public, I'm thinking about all the people that live in the houses and walk in the streets and engaging. When another discipline may be talking about public, whether it be from a um, engineering science perspective, maybe from an ethics science perspective, that definition of public could be very different and could be only a particular segment of the community. Fundamentally, building a relationship with a community or them with researchers is the same as any other. It needs time and respect. Researchers need to consider community members right from the inception of their ideas. They need to talk to them, spend time with them, and don't come in with assumptions about who they are. Research can really benefit many communities. Flint is still coming to terms with the water crisis, and the long-term health effects are not known at this point. Research will hopefully continue to help the citizens of Flint, and many communities beyond. So, it's something that's worth getting right.
That was Nick Petridge Howe. For this piece, he spoke to Rick Sadler from Michigan State University and E. Yvonne Lewis, who is the Director of Outreach for Genesee Health Plan in Flint, Michigan, and CEO of the National Center for African American Health Consciousness. For more on community-based research, check out the comment article written by Rick and Yvonne, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Well, David, a lot in that one then, and I think it shows the benefits that can be had when scientists in the local community work together, but it also shows the perils when that isn't done. Yeah, and, you know, what was great about that piece was the candour there, wasn't it? This sort of honest appraisal. You know, I love the way that actually towards the end of the piece, you know, they're talking about future collaborations. And I think one thing about collaborations, of course, is that the best ones continue. You can be collaborators for multiple points throughout somebody's career. You know, you can you can collaborate with people repeatedly. And uh, I think it was really important that that came out, this idea that, you know, this is just a not, not a one-hit wonder. You know, we're in this for the long haul. We're going to find other ways in which we can really, really work together effectively. And Nick made the point that it's respect and it's communication that really are super important for endeavours like this. Yes, it's communication, isn't it? So we're back to the idea of the scientific prenup, the team charter, you know, get it all out there, get your thoughts down, talk about some of the potential tensions that you're going to find along the way. And hopefully fruitful collaborations will continue long into the future. I'm sure that they will. Well, David, you mentioned the word future there. Does the special take a look at, at where collaborations may go given all we've been through recently yeah I mean we, we do touch on that and obviously after such an extraordinary year we were quite keen with the special that we didn't kind of focus solely on the pandemic but most of the content alludes to it and indeed some of the case studies we've got were very much informed by how collaborations were forged during the last sort of 12 to 15 months and in fact in the feature article that we've got we are actually asking our audience how has COVID impacted your collaborations with international partners and we're keen to capture the positives the negatives and of course if they respond positively or negatively we're inviting them to write in with details and also with the other thing that we're doing is we have a bigger survey actually going on at the moment we do a uh, a biennial salary and job satisfaction survey and the field work for that is out at the moment so you know there are links to that on the website and that does include questions around how the last sort of 12 to 18 months has been for researchers around the world and we know we do touch on collaborations there so i think it is very much a case of watch this space ben we will be returning and picking up on some of the themes that get covered in the special which goes out this week well david let's leave it there then i guess i mean hopefully you'll come on the show again and we can revisit the results of those surveys and see you know where collaborations might be going and what lessons have been learnt. But for the time being, maybe you could tell us where all of this week's content can be found. Yeah, we've collected all of the articles together. You can find them at go.nature.com forward slash collaborations. Excellent. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes, of course. And also, we've got a video to highlight as well. It's a short documentary which looks inside a collaboration between one team in China and another one in the UK. There's language barriers, WeChat queries, differences in scientific practices and valuable friendships made along the way. It's a fascinating watch. Find it over at youtube.com slash nature video channel and we'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. As always, you can reach out to us on Twitter. We're at nature podcast or on email. We're podcast at nature.com. But for now, for this special collaboration edition of The Nature Podcast, I've been Benjamin Thompson. And I've been David Payne. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 